I believe I've said it before, I'm a fan of Stranger Things. It's a Netflix TV show. It's in its fourth season. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you don't have interest in such things. The premise of the show is this. There is a normal world, a world that would look very much like the world you and I are used to. That, um, and then there is this upside down. We won't go into how they ex- found the upside down, but the upside down is a kind of a parallel dimension, except it's dark. There are vines everywhere, and the vines are sentient. It's a place of fear and danger. It provides a good image for our next sermon series. We're going to be talking about a series that we're calling Unwanted God. And it turns out, because you might be asking that, you know, well, why are you going to talk about an unwanted God to a bunch of Christians? Aren't we the people that actually want God? I think we'll find, as we examine some people, uh, some characters that are in the Bible, that it's all too common of experience for even God's own people to not want the God who is, but instead to prefer some kind of a version of that God, a God that we can form into what we desire that God to be. Today, uh, our chapter, our episode, it happens to be taking issue with God's wisdom. Taking issue with God's wisdom. Our passage is going to be Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. These seven verses are part of a longer passage that actually begins in chapter 2, verse 4, and goes all the way to the end of chapter 3. It's a long passage. It's an important passage, but it can be a difficult passage to experience. And the main reason for that is because of centuries upon centuries of theology being layered over the top of the passage. Centuries upon centuries of people turning to the passage with questions that the passage wasn't intended to answer. And so if we we set those aside, by the way, the Apostle Paul actually used this passage as he was explaining just how great the good news of Jesus Christ is. He would talk about how sin came into the world through one man, and, and now through Jesus we have this salvation that comes to us, this redemption. We're not going to teach Paul this morning. We're going to go in and enjoy the passage for what it is. This incredible piece of Scripture, this amazing storytelling, the important lesson that it presents. Because we're going to focus our time on verses 1 through 7 of chapter 7, what we're going to need to do is grab a few things from those verses that lead up to that part of the story. And because that story is so critical, so important, we'll actually spend a little time looking at the aftermath of that story as well but 3, 1 through 7, gives us that critical moment. It's a moment I believe that we find ourselves all too often facing. Will we choose God's world? Will we choose God's world? Or will we choose our way? Will we choose the upside down? The, the, the world designed after our own fashion. 
If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to Genesis, uh, to chapter 3. We'll put it on the screen as well. If you're at home and participating, we're so glad that you're a part of our worship service. Feel free to grab your Bible as well. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Hear the Word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. May God bless the reading of His Word. And may God show His favor upon us as well as we come under His Word. All right, so let's take a look at the lead-up to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. In, these, in the lead-up, what we discover is the wisdom of God's world. The wisdom of God's world. Before the pandemic arrived, Vicky and I had an opportunity to be in Scotland. And part of our trip involved going to, excuse me, to Edinburgh. And in Edinburgh, we actually took time to go to Greyfriars um, Kirkyard, Greyfriars Cemetery. Because, as I've shared before, I'm a massive Harry Potter fan. And so when J.K. Rowling was writing um, uh, the Harry Potter books, at least at the very beginning, she was up in that community, and, and she was forming the world of Harry Potter. She was going to write seven volumes of this story, and she had to create a world in which those um, volumes would occur, which that story would be laid out. And so part of her work was to go into the cemetery, and she took from the various tombstones, she took names, and those names became characters in the story. I've always been impressed when authors create that world. Because for the Harry Potter series, there would be millions upon millions upon millions of people who would read those books and they would be looking for those incongruities, those inconsistencies. And so the formation of that world took uh, great detail and attention. Well, what we find from our text is that God's world isn't so complicated. The world that God describes for us in the passage that leads up to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, has a certain simplicity to it. Here's what God provides. He provides vocation. He provides permission, and he provides prohibition. Now, I didn't create those words, and others have spoken them before and written about them, but what we find in chapter 2, verse 15, are these words. God took man, after God had taken dust and created man and taken a rib and, and, and created a, a, a partner for man, and God took man and put him into the garden 
to work and keep it. In God's plan, in God's wisdom for this world, He gave His human creatures a vocation, work to do. And then He gave them permission. You know, it's so often that people will comment about Christianity or have that kind of gut feel of, you know, there's just full of a bunch of thou shalt not. But there is this gift of God in God's wisdom that He would give just this amazing freedom. He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Have at it. You've been put in this wonderful place. Enjoy. Here's work to do. I want you to work the garden and keep it. And here's permission. Go and eat of all the trees. Enjoy what's been put before you. And then there's prohibition. Chapter 2, verse 17. God says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Vocation, permission, prohibition. These three gifts characterize the world that God has for us. This is the wisdom of God. He gives us purpose, freedom, and boundaries. He gives us labor, liberty, and limits. He gives us work, autonomy, and exclusions. When humans respect these three gifts, we find that it provides for a non-anxious, no-shame community. That's the picture we get in verse 25 in chapter 2. They were naked and not ashamed. They were being together. They, they were in this place. They had vocation. They had permission. They had a prohibition. And in this environment that God created for them, there was no anxiety. There was no shame. There was no disconnect. This is God's wisdom and desire for humankind. We even find it in the teaching of Jesus. When Jesus, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, he, he, he provides this, this encouragement. He says, you know what? Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or don't worry about what you're going to wear. Instead, he goes, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Jesus desires for us. Jesus desires for all people that their world would not be an, an, an anxiety-filled experience, but that it would be full of God's own kingdom, that we would recognize God's presence with us in Christ. We find Paul talking about this as well, that Paul, in the letter to the Philippian church, he says, you know what? Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. And then he talks about, but in prayer and being thankful, and he says, get this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. This is God's desire for his people, to be in this kind of experience, this kind of a community together. So let's pause. Let's pause. And let's consider our own embrace of that wisdom. Let's consider our own tilling how we're living out the vocation that God has for us. Not just whether we happen to work at, at, at CAT or, or as a teacher or we're raising kids or a broader sense of our vocation, the, the stepping up into all that God has called us into being in this world. Consider your own tilling. 
realizing that God has handed us a world to tend in his name. Consider your own enjoyment of all of God's permissions, all that God has has gifted us with in in this world in which we live. He gives us all kinds of freedoms and permissions. He he gives us his very creation that we would enjoy it to his glory. Consider your enjoyment of permissions. Consider your honoring of limits. That God in his wisdom, in the the combination of here's a vocation and and, and here's permission and, and here are prohibitions, God has provided us clear limits in Scripture for us to follow. When we come to that portion of the passage that we read, however, what we experience is the assault on God's wisdom. The assault on God's wisdom. And it might be helpful if we um, refresh our minds on just a shared definition of wisdom. And I believe we've shared this in this room before, but um, I first read this in a Tim Keller book, and I think he may have been quoting somebody else. But a definition for wisdom is the right application of knowledge in a given situation. The right application of knowledge in a given situation. Let me me give just a little illustration of what that that might mean. I like to fish. I enjoy fishing. I I enjoy, if I had my druthers, I'd enjoy catching more than fishing, but I actually enjoy fishing whether I catch or not. And at home, I've got a, a tackle box full of lures. And the thing with lures, that they're designed for different situations. They, um, and for different fish, you might be fishing. You can know all about lures. You can know why they have certain hooks on them, and you can know uh, why they have this, this fin on it to cause it to move in the water in a certain way. The difference between that knowledge And the wisdom is that when you are out on the water, when you're out on a lake or standing by a stream or if you're out in the ocean, wisdom is choosing the right lure for that situation. You can have all the knowledge about all the lures, but wisdom comes down to given the clouds and the time of day and the kind of fish and the kind of location, choosing the right lure, choosing the right knowledge for a given situation. Well, the challenge for humans, the challenge for us, is yielding to God's revelation on what is right. Let's look at what happens in our story. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we find that the serpent enters the story. And he's introduced as more crafty than any other beast of the field. You know, we may go to this passage and, and want to assign, well, the serpent, is, is that the evil one? And, and where does the serpent come from? And what's the origin of evil? And we have all these questions, but we're going to set all of those aside because the story doesn't seem to be interested in answering those questions. We might even be able to envision that original gathering of people who, who first received this story, this this. Re- re- revelation of God, and they, and they heard it, and, and more than likely, given the kind of culture that they were living in, they knew something about snakes. More than likely, as they were hearing these, these words being shared, they already had stories of, of the slimy, slippery nature of snakes. Enter the serpent, introduced as more crafty than any other beast of the field. 
And the serpent said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Isn't it so interesting how the serpent is beginning a conversation about God's word? You know, this could be a seminarian that's having an espresso with other seminarians sitting around and theologizing. Did God actually say? And they start to kick it around. This could be a Bible study in any classes as people are sitting around a table and we begin to ask each other, well, what did God actually say? Well, what does this passage mean to you? The serpent theologizing. Open up the door for this Bible. By the way, we shouldn't be too surprised that Bible study can lead to some things that do not honor God, that theological reflection can be used in a way and manipulated so that it doesn't lead to what God's wisdom has revealed. Instead, it leads to such things as the Crusades. Biblical reflection has led in the past to people burning people at the stake. Biblical reflection at times have, in fact, time after time after time after time has been used to substantiate slavery. The manipulation of Scripture has been used in such a way over the course of human history to um, uh, institutionalize misogyny. We know this. We've seen it. We've experienced it. You know, in Scripture, God actually said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. But the door had already been opened. The serpent had opened that door. It's like opening Pandora's box, giving this opportunity. Hey, can we twist some words? Can, can we move God's words around? Can, can we control it for our own desires? So the woman responds, And at first she corrects the serpent. You know, no, God, we may eat of trees in the garden. But God did say, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nor shall you touch it. Which, when we looked at the the lead up to these, these verses, we found that God did not say that. Here, now, as the serpent has opened that door for twisting, manipulating, we find that the woman is adding words to what God had said, nor shall you touch it lest you die. The woman is rewriting the prohibition, turning the prohibition into a a technical issue of theology and ethics. And so God goes from being the God who establishes community with vocation and permission and prohibition, establishing this, this community to now we can consider, is this the God who is just too burdensome? So the serpent answers back, you will not surely die. And maybe I've watched too many Disney films because I have kind of that voice of a, of a snake in mind and all the S's drawn out. And The serpent answers, but you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. How insidious, how devious, how slippery and sinister. The serpent does a thing where he takes the woman's attention on the possibilities out there and doesn't look at, do you know that, that in choosing those possibilities, what you actually do is you choose against God's wisdom. You will be like God because you will be making your own rules. It's not like this is going to make you God out here. It's not like the fruit of that tree is going to make you like, you're going to make yourself like God when you start making your own rules. We see it in the words about the woman. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and others have made the statement before. We know that in chapter 1, it is the story of creation where, where God creates stuff and he, and he declares things good. And now we have the woman declaring that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The woman saw it was good and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired. It's the act of choosing human wisdom, human perception over trusting God and his wisdom. When American Idol first came out, I watched I watched it. I think this was like 50 years ago. It's been on for like forever. And back in the day, it was Simon Cowell and Randy Jackson and Paul Abdul. And they sat at a table and, and people would come in front of them and, and they would audition, they would sing something. And, and then uh, Cowell and Jackson and Abdul, they would judge them. You can go forward, you go home. You can go forward, you can go home. And what the woman, woman in this story does is that she puts herself at that table. And she goes, you know what? This is a desirable fruit, that is not. This is a desirable fruit, that is not. She makes the choice. She puts herself in the place of, I think my wisdom is going to be better than God's wisdom. And so let's pause. Is there a wisdom of God that you know you've been assaulting? Is there wisdom of God where you have sat at that table and you're the one going, you know, I, I don't like the way God has sculpted that piece of wisdom and I, I think I'm going to change it, edit it, so it feels better. Maybe we do this out of desire. Maybe, maybe like the woman in the story, we do this out of desire. Like we desire something, so we want to rewrite God's wisdom so it fits our desire. Maybe we do it because we're stubborn and we just want to dig our heels in. I know, God, you want me to do that, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to dig my heels in. And we reject his wisdom because we think that we're in a better position to know. Or maybe we do it because we simply want to ignore it, and that's our approach. And so we plug our ears and we close our eyes. I, I can't see it. I can't hear it. Therefore, I don't have to be held accountable to it. 
Is there a wisdom of God that you know you've been assaulting for some time? In the aftermath of those seven verses, what we find is the foolishness of human wisdom. The foolishness of human wisdom. So what happens when we choose our wisdom over God's wisdom? You know, it's not an issue for this woman of a choice between knowledge and ignorance. It's a choice of desire over trust. Autonomy over submission. Human wisdom over divine wisdom. Our way over God's way. And it has consequences. The very act of rejecting God's wisdom brings its own death. Verse 7, they knew they were naked. What had been a community formed by God's vocation, his permission, his prohibition, now they knew they were naked. And so together, fig leaves to hide themselves one from another. In verse 8, they hid from God. Verse 10, the man says, I was afraid. Fear enters. When, when the woman and the man created that upside down, when, when they preferred their wisdom over this world that God had given them, now fear enters the picture. In verses 14 through 19, God's discipline rightly comes. Going against God has consequences. Life is made harder. Verses 22 through 24, we find that God removes them from the garden. Yes, it, it turned out that the serpent was right. They did not physically die. The woman did not physically die. The man did not physically die when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what stands out in the story then is not so much that God in fact, it's not at all that God was wrong. It's that the great act and the great miracle of God's mercy, which is a story that is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. God suffering over long times, wanting to give opportunity for His people to return to Him. God sending prophets. God sending His world, word. Is eventually, God sending His Son to redeem How foolish, choosing all this struggle and anxiety and fear and removal over simply trusting God's wisdom. Let's pause. Let's pause. Let's consider the consequences that we suffer today due to humanity's love affair with its own wisdom. How we suffer conflict and struggle and strife, and anxiety, and hardship, and prejudice, and classism, and poverty, and violence, and war, and abuse, and hatred, and neglect, and bullying, and manipulating, and harming, and hurting, and separating, and shunning, and belittling. The upside down that, that when we choose our wisdom over God's wisdom, this is the world it results in. You might say, well, why doesn't God do something about it? He did. And humanity chose the upside down. Well, how would, then would we apply such teaching? Maybe you have that area in your life where you have not wanted the God of the Bible, where God is unwanted to you, 
too invasive in your life. Maybe one of his teachings, maybe a lot of his teachings. What if we were to move from that unwanted God position to confessing, God, listen, I've tried it without you. I want to go your way. Confessing we really want you, the God of the Bible, not the God of our making. And we want you on your terms. We know God has made his wisdom abundantly clear. He's given us all kinds of things in Scripture about his love for us, about his permissions for us to enjoy life, about his callings on our life. Love one another, hold one another accountable, be my witnesses, shine your light, be holy, be merciful, love your enemies, forgive repeatedly, keep your marriage vows, do not lust, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. How many times each day do we find ourselves taking issue with these wisdoms of God? Like the serpent, we too can be pretty slimy and slippery. It comes out in statements like this. Maybe you've heard yourself say statements like this. Well, God wants me to be happy. Do, do you get what we do when we, when we have a, 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 a hermeneutic, a, a lens on all of God's word with, with God wants me to be happy? Now ha- my happiness becomes the judge, the filter on all wisdom. Or maybe we say stuff like, I don't want to be foolish with my money. And we set aside all of God's teaching on money because we've just said, well, I don't want to be foolish. And now we recreate teaching on money all based on our own personal wisdom. Or maybe we use that line, I'm just not ready to blank, as though that's a ticket to avoid all that God has revealed. I'm just not ready to share my faith. I'm just not ready to go deeper in my relationship. I'm just not ready to. And so here's the challenge. Let's cut ties with our slimy, serpent-like rationalizations. What if we were to be able to say, God, I don't want to make the same choice that the woman and the man made. God, I choose you. I choose your wisdom. What if we could say that every single day? What if we could say that a thousand times a day, every time we get confronted with that option? I choose you, God. I choose your wisdom. You know, Jesus is the one who makes that possible for us today. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son into this world, his only begotten son. And that Jesus came into this world and, and he taught and he loved and, and he shared and he, and he healed and, and he gave his life. And his death on the cross was for us. He paid the penalty so we wouldn't... This is God's wisdom. This is God's wisdom for us that we would have opportunity to live with him forevermore, to embrace all that he has for us, to to embrace our vocation and all the permission and the prohibitions through Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave us a picture of that. He gave us a meal of that, a, a sacrament, that even as we would share in this together today, that we would experience his grace, even as we know he's present with us today. And so it was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do so remembering me. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant 
the new relationship, God coming after you through love and grace and forgiveness. It's sealed in my blood that whenever we would drink of it, we would do so remember, remembering him. For whenever, whenever we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we proclaim his death, knowing that one day he's coming again. You are welcome to enjoy this meal today. We would ask that, that you're at that place where you go, yes, God, I want your wisdom. Yes, God, I come to you through your son, Jesus Christ, and I want you to be the Lord of my life. I give myself to you. And if you're not there yet, we're so glad you're in this room. But let's wait then for this meal until that time when you can be able to say, I get it. I embrace it. When you come forward, if you would come to the sides, there's going to be two people that will have baskets. They'll take um, a, a little cup that has a, um, a piece of a wafer in it as well, and they'll put that into your hands. And if we can hold on that together uh, and wait that we might be able to eat as one people. If you're concerned about issues of gluten, both the, the juice and the wafer are gluten-free. Would you join with me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the one who sets things apart for your glory. You are the one who establishes your world, your universe. You are the one who shows forth your name. You are the one who creates humans. You are the one who sent your son into this world. And Jesus, we thank you that you gave your life, that through you we would have life forevermore. God, in this encounter, would you work your grace in our lives? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.